Well, would you please turn back with me to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, and the verse that we shall be particularly concentrating on uh, is verse 6. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Well, can I remind you what we are doing on Sunday mornings and, in a sense, Sunday evenings as well? We are preparing for a new start in the church's life. Following all of the sadnesses and the distress of COVID year, we have a great opportunity. We know that there is always good that can come out of even the worst of situations under God's providence. And one of the good things that comes out of having a year out uh, is that we can reset the church in a way. And we can reset the church to its proper biblical settings. You see, it's possible to do this because everything has stopped. For, for a while, everything stopped in the church building, didn't it? Only Sunday worship and prayer continued, but in a very different form. It's not easy uh, when everything is going at full pace to really reset things, to, to start to think seriously about what we are about as a church. Not to say that anything that we were doing was particularly wrong. It is to say that we can get so caught up with a church's program of events that we just keep going and we never stop to say, well, what should we be doing? We can assume, you see, that everything we did and the way we did everything was the right way. We assumed that our priorities as a church were all the right priorities. They might have been, but they might not. And we need to think through this in the light of the word of God. It's very important to do this because churches, including ourselves, are involved in a variety of different activities. So you find that uh, churches today, these days, Certainly before COVID, uh, these days churches are involved in food banks, in money advice, in social care, sports teams, clothing exchanges, children's meetings, lunches for retired people, parenting classes, camps, training for life, music groups, choirs, and I could go on, many other things you know of. Now, arguments can quite clearly be made for all of those things. And I'm not suggesting that any of them are by nature wrong. But none of those are the main purpose of the church. And every church has limited resources. Some churches have much greater resources than others. But every church has limited resources. And so every church, ourselves included, need to ask the question, what should the church be doing? And in order to answer that question, we've been actually doing that over a number of weeks, 
But where do we look? We look into the word of God. And one of the places that we can look quite clearly is a book of Acts. We could begin almost anywhere in this wonderful book of Acts. It is the most exciting and the most encouraging book in the New Testament as we see the church going about its true business with power and with the presence of God. Now in the book of Acts, you find lots of sermons. So you find Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 10, Peter's sermon in Cornelius' house. We could look at those. But there are some wonderful stories in between those sermons. And these great stories, these great accounts of what happened in the church are also there in order to teach us. They're very vivid and they're quite memorable and that helps us to think through the teaching. They teach us just as the sermons teach us, but they teach us in a different way. We look at these wonderful events and we are led to ask, well, why did that happen? Why did it happen like that? Why did they say those words? And then we are led to think about what it is that God would have us to understand. Now Acts chapter 3 is one of those passages. It is a story of a man, true story. When I use the word story, I'm not suggesting that these are made up, fictional. They're not. They're absolutely true in every detail. It's an account, a narrative of something that truly happened. So it is the story of a man who was born paralyzed, a man who was born lame. And one day, this man was healed miraculously as he sat there by the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. The healing led to a series of events that resulted in Peter and John preaching in the temple and then being arrested and giving testimony in front of the Jewish leaders. So today, let's focus on this healing, and particularly on Peter's words in verse 6, when he says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now this healing was a great miracle. I don't want us to lose sight of that. It was a great miracle. Miracles are when God chooses to act in a different way to the normal laws of nature. There are times when he chooses to act immediately rather than through means. Normally in this world we have cause and effect. God is in control of all of that. But there are times when he chooses to act directly and immediately without the normal laws of this world that he has put in place. We need to remember, don't we, that every healing is a work of God. Every time you have been ill and sick or injured and then you have recovered, that is a work of God every single time. It is God who has chosen 
that the normal means that we use, the medical care that we have, the drugs that we have, all of the hospital care that we have, and just the body's ability to heal itself, we say, all of that comes from God. It is God who determines which medicines will work and which will not, how long or short a particular illness will be. We are all in the hands of God and every healing is a work of God. But there are times when God acts immediately and directly, as he did here with this man. And for this man and for his family, this was a great day that changed his life forever. He went to the gate called Beautiful that day, as he had been many, many days before. This man was born like this. He had never known a single day when he'd stood on his legs and when his feet had carried him without the help of anyone else. Every day of his life, he knew his weakness, he was lame. He knew that those legs had no strength in them whatsoever. What the cause of his lameness was, we don't know. But he was lame from the time that he was born. And here he was, coming as he always had. Well, not coming really, being brought. He was being carried. He had to rely on other people to help him. And they carried him to that gate called Beautiful by the temple. And they laid him there as he had been laid every day for who knows how long. Because everybody knows, don't they, that if you, if you ask someone who's a believer for help, they're likely, more likely, to give it to you than someone who's not. And so to go to a church and ask for help, or to go to the temple in this case and ask for help, he would probably be more likely to gain something. And there he was, sitting by the gate, just hoping, and maybe occasionally looking up, but I guess most of the time just looking down I don't know whether he had a little container there that he just put down next to him. We sometimes see it still, don't we, sadly? Even in our 21st century, people who have to resort to, to begging. But there he was on that day. But this day, unlike any other day in his life, was a day when strength would be given to those legs. And for the first time in his life, he was able to stand up Strength returned to his legs, his knees, his ankles, his feet, and he stood and he didn't just walk. He jumped and he ran and he praised God because clearly this was a work of God. So it was a miracle. Let's not forget that. But all the miracles in the Bible are also signs. When you read through John's Gospel, you particularly see him saying that this was the first sign that Jesus did. And then he, he mentions all these miracles. There are seven in John's Gospel, aren't they? And each one of them, John uses as an illustration of Jesus' teaching, and more than that, an illustration of what Jesus can do for us spiritually. What he does for people physically, he can do for us spiritually. And it is far, far more important 
that he works in us spiritually than that he does physically. What is the point of you having perfect health and strength all through your life and even having miraculous strength and having miracles of healings if you are never brought to new life in Jesus Christ? If your spiritual eyes are still blind, if your spiritual ears are still deaf, if your heart is still hardened towards God, there is no point in going through your whole life with perfect health. On the other hand, someone with very poor health, who lived their whole life, even a very short life, but comes to know the Lord Jesus as their saviour, and their spiritual eyes are opened and their ears are unstopped and their heart is changed so that it responds to God, that person is a far better in a far better place than the person who has known full health all their lives and dies without knowing Christ. So these healings are always signs for us as well. And they are illustrations of something deeper and meaning meaningful. The sign points to God. The sign says this is something that God has done and it is wonderful and only God can do it. That's certainly true of this man, isn't it? He, he got up and he walked and he jumped and what did he do next? Praised God because that, that was something that only God could do. But these, these miracles are also often illustrations. They're illustrations of, of something much deeper and more meaningful. For instance, um, you might remember that in Mark chapter 8, there is a very unusual healing of a man who is blind. And the Lord Jesus touches his eyes and says, Can you see anything? And he says, I see men like trees walking. And then Jesus touches him a second time and he can see. That's the only time in the Bible where Jesus has a two-stage healing. That's strange, isn't it? But it's an illustration. It's an illustration of the fact that the disciples up to that point only had partial spiritual sight. They could see a lot more than most people, but like that man, they just saw men like trees walking. They couldn't see clearly. And what Jesus was showing them is that they needed a second touch from him. And when they had that second touch, then they would be able to see clearly. It's no accident that straight after that, they go to Caesarea Philippi and Jesus says to them, who do people say I am? And then he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, actually, uh, that didn't come from your own brain, Peter. God revealed that to you. Because just like that blind man, he'd now come to full sight about who Jesus was. So sometimes these healings are like illustrations of what God does. And here, the healing of the man born paralyzed is a great illustration of the problem that all of us face from birth. And also the illustration of how and only how it can be cured. So here's the first thing. The world can only go so far in helping people in their misery. That's the first thing 
that I want to, to drive home to us this morning from this passage. The world can only go so far in helping people in their misery. There's no doubt that this man was in a miserable condition. He could not walk. He had been like it from birth. He had never enjoyed the things that you are enjoying today. Being able to come here, being able to stand, being able to walk, being able to decide where you're going. He'd never done that. He could speak? Yes. He could move his arms? Yes. He could see and hear? Yes, all that is true. He could think great thoughts. But his life was severely restricted. He couldn't enjoy life. He couldn't even move himself to a place where he could beg. He couldn't work. He couldn't earn his own living. He was reliant upon other people. And that is an illustration of human beings in their helpless state because of sin. You see, we were originally created, you go back to the first two chapters of the whole Bible, and you discover that we were originally created for life. And to have life in all of its fullness. We were originally created for a relationship with God Almighty. He made us. And we were made to enjoy everything that God could give. But that's all changed. We're no longer in that situation. Not a single child has ever been born into this world who has been free of sin. Save Jesus himself, of course. But we were made to enjoy all of that. And yet it was all thrown away in the Garden of Eden because of disobedience, because of rebellion in the heart. And that's what sin is. It's that rebellion and sinfulness in our nature that rebels against Almighty God and resists him and refuses to listen to him. As one great hymn puts it, In Eden, sad indeed that day, my countless blessings fled away, my crown fell in disgrace. That's where we are. We're in this miserable condition because of sin. We are paralyzed in our soul. We're limited, severely limited in all that we can enjoy in this world. We're separated from God and we are helpless to enjoy the freedoms of life with God. Now the world can do an awful lot to alleviate the miseries of this world. Because you might be saying right now, well, I don't actually think that life is all that miserable. Well, in a way, you're right. It's not as miserable as it could be, because the world has an awful lot that helps us to alleviate the miseries of life. Let me give you a few. You could add to these, I'm sure. Top of my list would be music. What a great thing the gift of music is. Imagine a world without music. Music brings enjoyment and pleasure and peace to our heart and to our soul. Music is a great gift of God. Literature as well. The ability to read wonderful books that have been written, the most glorious novels and most wonderful biographies 
Literature is a great thing. Dance, apparently, some people say. Film. People love watching film, don't they? And for a while, the miseries of life are just blown away as you get deep into watching a film and enjoying some story that's unfolding and some beautiful acting. Walking. Just walking. This last year, people have re, re, re discovered walking. They haven't reinvented it because walking's been there for a long time. They've rediscovered it though, haven't they? We've, we've been able to get out there and to walk and to enjoy this world. Sport as well. We're both taking part in sport and in watching it. The love of family. That's a great thing, isn't it? That for many people alleviates the miseries of life as they find great joy in children and in, in brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents. Hobbies. We have things that interest us, quite apart from work, because work can be a chore, can't it? Uh, even though for the Christian we see it as part of our service and our obedience to Christ, it can be a chore, but hobbies we choose. And there are many diversions like these in, in, in life. But do you know, all of these things and many others, they fall short of satisfying the deepest needs of the human heart. Because we cannot live well, and we certainly cannot die well, because there is a fear in our lives. There is a fear in death. And that is quite a right and proper and justifiable fear. Only the Christian can truly look forward to death. Only the Christian can truly say with the Apostle Paul, for me to die is gain. And you know, even for many of us as Christians, we find it hard to say that because we get so caught up in all of those diversions of the world and we say, I don't really want to leave any of those. But for the Christian, to die is gain. But for the one who doesn't know God, there is only the misery of this world and the terrible expectation of what is to come. Like this man then, all that the world can do is to lay us down in a place where people might be kind to us and throw us a few coins and make life just a little bit bearable than it would be otherwise. That's all the world can do. Now here's the second thing. People expect the wrong things from the church. People expect the wrong things from the church. Now we see that in this man as well. This man saw Peter and John coming. They were coming up to the temple for the time of prayer. You remember, by the way, that the believers are meeting in the temple courts every single day. Since Pentecost, they've been coming to the temple every day in great numbers and they've been worshipping Jesus together. And they've been reading the Bible together. And they've been praying together. And they've been doing that every single day. And we discover from this passage that they did it at three o'clock in the afternoon, which is one of the set times for prayer. So they used that as a time when they would get together in the temple courts. And here come Peter and John at three o'clock in the afternoon. And this man has been put at the temple gate outside. And it was a strategic place for him 
because people going to worship might well be more generous. He expected them to give him money. That's the point. He expected them to give him money. We actually read that, don't we? Verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave, him his, gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. That's really important, that. Expecting to get something from them. He was expecting money. And in the same way, people expect the church to do certain things for them. So, you talk to somebody who's not a Christian, who probably doesn't come to church, and they will have an idea of the church. It probably will be a reasonably good idea of the church, in the sense that they will think positive things about the church. They will no doubt think that churches are places where people are kind and generous. They might think that the church is a place where people should be taught the difference between right and wrong. So they will see church, for instance, as a place of moral teaching. So many people send their children to a Sunday school because they want their children to learn the difference between right and wrong. And they think if they send their children to Sunday school, they'll end up being better people. So they think the church is a place for that. Other people consider churches to be places for good music. And maybe for culture, they think about some of the lovely buildings that churches and cathedrals have. And they say, well, that's wonderful, isn't it? You know, they've really contributed something to life. And the music that has come out of church life over the years, many people enjoy that. Some people see a church as a place where perhaps they can join a choir and have a great sing-along. And, and they see it like that. Other people see a little bit deeper and they say, well, no, I think the church is there to help me when I'm in trouble. And so they, they think the church is there to counsel them and to help them through the difficult periods of life, perhaps a bereavement or perhaps a, a mental illness or a phobia or some other great tragic events or trauma. And well, the church surely should be there to help them through those times. Perhaps others think the church is a social place where they can receive money. Many, many people believe that the church should and can give them money to help them financially or even to give them financial advice. And then there is food and then there are clothes, aren't there? And then, of course, children's clubs and teenage youth clubs to keep the youngsters off the streets. Now, none of those things are wrong in themselves. But when the people expect the church to give all of those things, they are greatly mistaken. Because not one of those things is the reason why the church is here. Not a single one of those is the reason why the church exists. There's another thing too that we need to take on board. The world does all of those things much better than we do. Much better. The world is much, much better at music and entertainment than the church will ever be. The world is quite well set up as far as social care is concerned. And there are agencies that are set up just to provide that. We know it's broken. 
And we know that in those situations, the church very often will step into the gap, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not the reason why the church is here. But there is one thing, and one thing alone, that only the church can do. People often don't want that. They want something else. They want something else like this man did. He thought he wanted money. And that's what he was expecting. But he didn't get that, did he? No, he got the one thing that only Peter and John could give him. Nobody else could give him this, but Peter and John could. And there is something that only the church can give. And we must, we must put that as our priority because no one else can give it. And if we start doing lots and lots of other things, we may miss out on the one thing that only the church can give. So my final point today is this. The church needs to focus on what it does have. The church needs to focus on what it does have. Peter was quite clear. They didn't have what this man was looking for. Silver or gold, I do not have. And it's usually the same with the church, isn't it? We don't actually have a great deal of money. Because silver and gold is not actually what we tend to accumulate told that one of the popes in the 12th century was showing Thomas Aquinas around St. Peter's and the Vatican. And uh, this pope pointed to all the gold and silver and all the ornate buildings and he said this, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. I do see, said Thomas, but I see something further. She also cannot say, rise up and walk. That's true, isn't it? And that's the problem. Once you start focusing on the wrong things, you may lose the very thing that only the church possesses. Peter could not alleviate this man's misery by money. But he could do something far greater. He could cure the man's paralysis. He could actually deal with the very cause of the misery. He had something that could deal with that paralysis. What was that? Well, he's very clear, isn't he? Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. That's it. That's what he had. In a sense, he had nothing else, but he had Jesus. He had Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That is what the church has. That is what we possess. We possess the richest and the most wonderful treasure in all the world because we possess Jesus, or he possesses us. We know Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he says, in the name of Jesus, Jesus the name that he was given when he was born of the Virgin. The perfect man, Jesus. The name that means God saves. The one who was born without 
our paralysis. The only one who was born without the very source of our misery. Jesus, born sinless, the Son of God. Christ, the one sent by God the Father from heaven. The Holy Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Christ, the eternal God, all-powerful and holy. He took on our nature, our human nature, onto his divine nature. And he lived here for 33 years. And then he gave that life on the cross of Calvary for sinners. Jesus Christ. And then three days later he rose again. And these men, Peter and John, were witnesses of the resurrection and of the resurrected Christ Jesus. They knew him to be the only saviour of sinners. He'd saved them and they knew that he could save others as well. And they now possessed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what they can give. And so that is what they do. Only Jesus could do anything for this paralysed man. And we need to know that. Everybody in the world who we come into contact with Everybody who ever walks through the doors of this church, every single person, there is only one person who can help them. You can't help them and I can't help them. The only thing we can do is to point them to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then we know that in him they will have the very source of their misery dealt with. Their spiritual paralysis will be healed. And that is it. That's what we have. We have this message about Jesus. We have this message of salvation. So what does the church have to do? Well, what did Peter do? The first thing he told the man was, look at us. And that's what we need to do. We need to say to people, look at us. We need people to fix their attention on the church and its message. It is so easy for people to be distracted and to look everywhere and anywhere except to the church and its gospel message. And we have to say to people, this is something you really must hear. And you've got to pay close attention to what we say. You must fix your attention on this. That's what that man did. Verse 5, the man gave them his attention. He looked up and he fixed his eyes on them and he was ready to listen to what they had to say. And that's what we need to do. And you know, it's easy to come to church and to be distracted and to never really listen. And you've got to listen to the gospel message. You must not clutter your minds with anything else. That's not the main purpose of the church. We must give what, they, what we have to people who need it most desperately. We can't take away the misery of people's lives by offering them a few trinkets that will see them through this life. What good is that? What good is it to, to try to help someone a little bit? They're just going to go off and live their lives and in the end they're going to die without Christ. We need to make sure that we're offering them Jesus because he alone can take away the sickness and paralysis of their souls. We offer them forgiveness. That is wonderful. Forgiveness for all of their sins. The guilt 
that so weighs them down. We say, Jesus Christ can forgive your sins, and he will, because he died on Calvary's cross for you. But we can give more than that. We can say, Jesus Christ will give you life. Not just a little, but abundant life. Life with God. You will know life as you've never known it before. You will be invigorated in your soul. You will know God. And you will live with the God, with God within you. The Holy Spirit and his power. You will be able to live a life that pleases God and obeys him because of the strength and power of God within. This is a life that is like no other life. And what's more, it's a life that's eternal. And only Jesus can give it to you. So they must look, and they must hear, and they must know that only Jesus Christ of Nazareth can do them any good. Yes, Nazareth. Why did he say that? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Because Nazareth was a despised, unknown, unloved place. And yes, that's Jesus. People need to look at the one who was despised and rejected of men. The one who maybe they have rejected all of their lives as just not important. And they need to fix their eyes on this Jesus, this despised and rejected one, because he alone can save them. He alone took their sins in his body on the cross of Calvary. And only then will they be able, like this man, to walk and to jump and to praise God. What we do have, we must give. Well, may God bless his word to us. I'm going to close with a, a hymn. Number 483 in our hymn books. We have a gospel to proclaim. Good news for men in all the earth. The gospel of a saviour's name, we sing his glory, tell his worth. Tell of his birth at Bethlehem, not in a royal house or hall, but in a stable, dark and dim, the word made flesh, a light for all. Tell of his death at Calvary, hated by those he came to save, in lonely suffering on the cross, for all he loved, his life he gave. Tell of that glorious Easter morn. Empty the tomb, for he was free. He broke the power of death and hell, that we might share his victory. Tell of his reign at God's right hand, by all creation glorified. He sends his spirit on his church, to live for him, the Lamb who died. Now we rejoice to name him King. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. This gospel message we proclaim we sing his glory, tell his worth. Let's pray. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.